Good morning, and please open um, your Bibles. Actually, I think the first passage we'll be going to, um, open your Bibles to Nehemiah 8, and get the notes out. This morning, we're going to hit the semi-final note of our series in the Bible, a series that could have been much longer, but um, we, we, we said at six weeks. And so far, we've looked at just what is language and words in week one and week two. Why the Bible? Why not the Koran? Week three, what, what does the Bible say about itself, about its own accuracy and authority? And Jeb Brewer served us well with that. Week four, how, how broad? If Jeb Brewer dealt with how deep, how wide was week four? This week, the meaning of Scripture, hath God said. And that title, Hath God Said, is, is lifting the serpent's question to Eve in Genesis 3 from the King James. Very first question in the Bible is a not-so-subtle attack on the meaning of what God has said. As the serpent offers a reinterpretation of what God said and meant. Um, we said earlier that in the last 30 years, 40 years, Inerrancy came under attack, and, and good godly men rallied around that. Books were written, conferences were scheduled. One of the results of the attack on inerrancy is the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which really is an excellent, excellent short treatment on that. And lately, the, the target, the attack on the Bible, has shifted. In fact, what we deal with this morning is probably the most prevalent and yet subtle attack on the Bible yet which is simply the attack on the notion that words can be understood with certainty, that words mean things. Um, this, this starts up in the academy with postmodernism. Guys like Derrida, Stanley Fish, Michel Foucault start challenging these notions, and whereas I'm sure a few of you are familiar with that concept, it trickles down to something like this. And who here has not heard someone say to them, that's just your interpretation. That's just your view. I mean, is there anyone here who hasn't come up with that challenge? And so what happens then is any sort of notion of belief that you can know what the Bible means is viewed as one of two things, either arrogant or ignorant. Arrogant. How can you, with so many viewpoints and so many perspectives and so many cultures and so many traditions, how can you think you know what it means? Or perhaps you're not aware of the wide array of perspectives and traditions and you're just sort of an ignorant Christian. Uh, and this, this is everywhere. This, this notion no longer is that it used to be assumed that words, when spoken or written, their meaning was tied to what the author said. Authorial intent. And so, um, if you're trying to read a book, listen to song lyrics, you're asking, what is the writer, what is the author trying to say? That, that's no longer where most of our culture goes. Um, you hear people say, well, to me, I, I know that the author meant this, but when I listen to this song, this is what I think of, and it means this to me. I mean, whereas it may be less harmful and more harmless in that circumstance, that mentality that words can be twisted to make them mean what you want them to mean, you make no mistake, that is a very direct and very powerful attack at the scripture because what good is a book that God wrote that is inerrant, that is preserved, that is accurate if we can't understand it with any certainty? 
So you can silence the Bible a number of ways. You can deny it's the word of God, or you can just simply deny that we can understand it. What makes it even more subtle is that it's under the guise of humility. The people promoting this type of approach want to be humble. They want to recognize that we're frail and human and we can be wrong and, and therefore we don't want to be arrogant and pretend we have arrived at a meaning. And so this morning we'll try to deal with that. And, and we won't spend all of our time with that question, but hopefully we'll answer that, give you some confidence that you can understand the Bible, that God has not stuttered. And then we'll look at some principles for how to go about reading the Bible, how to study it. So that's sort of an outline of where we are going. And I want to make one more observation. There's a difference, and we need to distinguish, between people with legitimate questions. People who legitimately are confused. You know, I know this group of Christians says this passage means this, and this group says it means that, and I don't know what to make of that. And, and that's one thing, and praise God for people wrestling with things. What we're dealing with this morning is more the sort of avoidance of truth. Uh, the, the attempts to silence the Bible by, well, who knows what it can mean, and that's just your view, and and so I don't want to try to silence people who are having honest wrestlings with the text. And praise God for that. So we're going to try to answer this challenge. Do words mean things? Has God said? On two points. The first, God gave us words so that he might be known. God gave us words so that he might be known. And what I mean here is this. I think most discussion of language centers around the assumption that it is creaturely. It's something we came up with. And, and so the argument to attack meaning is just with, we're broken, finite, frail people and these broken, finite, frail words of ours, they can't possibly communicate divine truth. But that forgets, and this gets back to week one, where is the origin and source of language? Not man, but the talking God. Who is the first person to speak human language? God talking to Adam. See, God gave us words. He gave them to us. They're his gracious gift to us. We of all the creation use language like none other. And he gave us words primarily to be known. The talking God wants to be known. He wants to reveal himself. And what, what mechanism did he choose? Choose primarily words. Now, most perfectly and fully, God reveals himself in his son. This is absolutely true. But aside from a few thousand people who got to physically see and hear Jesus in his earthly life and ministry, how does everyone else approach Jesus, learn of Jesus, see Jesus through the words of the Gospels of the New Testament. And so, nearly without exception, God reveals himself through words. And even Jesus Christ himself is called the Word. And so I want us to start by saying, if God wants to be known, and he does, and if God has chosen and given us language in order that he might be known, did he choose poorly? Did he make a mistake? Is such a feat beyond even his ability? And the answer that comes back has to be no. Listen to Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Words exist, like all things, to fulfill God's purposes. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it spring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. See, God says words, like all things, exist for his purposes. Remember, all things are from him, and through him, and to him, and so language exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. It exists because of Jesus Christ. And God says, I will send out my word and it will accomplish what I want it to accomplish. And we can read in the backdrop of that, human frailty, human sinfulness will not thwart God's word or his purpose. And we can take great courage in that. Yes, if it was just us, perhaps then we could say, well, we couldn't understand anything. But God intends to be known. God intends to reveal himself. He wants to know you. He wants us to know him. He chose words, and then he says, I'm sending my word out, and I will oversee that it bears fruit and that it does not return void. And so we can take confidence. The talking God has spoken, and the talking God has promised that his word is not empty. He did not stutter. Not, over the, not only that, but the Bible also assumes that there is a meaning to the text. You can either open your Bibles to Nehemiah 8 or flip over your notes. It's written on the back. And in Nehemiah 8, the, the Israelites have returned from Babylon and they have not been faithful to hear God's word. And so they have a big church service, except their church service lasted most of the day. I mean, I want you to imagine us having a church service like they did. They're in the hot sun. They make a little pulpit for Ezra and Ezra reads the law, which minimum means Deuteronomy. Perhaps it was all five books of Moses. Minimum Deuteronomy. Then they took a quick break, and then they taught it and explained it. That's a pretty long worship service. So if you think my sermons are long, just... Um, I, I, we're, we're, we're not having it nearly as bad. So in Nehemiah 8, we'll pick it up in verse 1. All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. There's our first little sign. There's an expectation. The law is read. Understanding results. Men, women, children, all who could reasonably be expected to understand what they heard. Um, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square from the water gate from early morning until midday. So we have a sunrise service where we're just reading the text, not even talking about the text, just reading the text from sunrise to noon. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for this purpose, and beside him stood, and now we have a long list of names. Um, see how we do this. Mathathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbad, Nadha, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. Matthew, you can straighten me out afterwards um, on the pronunciations. Um, and Ezra, um, okay, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. There are many churches today where that stand for the reading of God's word. There's biblical precedent for that. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites helped the people understand the law. While the people remained in their place, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is just one of what could easily be hundreds of examples. The Bible assumes it is understandable. This whole endeavor, this whole, this whole big, long, standing in the sun endeavor is an attempt to gather the people, read the law, and then make sure everyone understood what was said. And of course, that would be a pointless task if meaning was, you know, culturally defined or community defined. No, there, there's an agreed upon amen and amen. The people with one voice agree on what was read and what was said. There could be many more examples. I'll give you one other one. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Let's look at at least one other one. Let's look at Jesus. Seven times in the gospel accounts, you read the words in Jesus' mouth, have you not read? Jesus regularly would hold people morally accountable for their failure to understand the Old Testament. Let me, let me say that again. Jesus regularly would rebuke would um, challenge in moral terms those who had read the law but did not understand it. For instance, in John 5, he takes the Pharisees head on and he says, you guys claim to love Moses and the law, but they speak of me. And if you really understood it, you'd understand he was talking about me. And he doesn't treat it as if that's some honest mistake. And well, I understand there are different, you know, Pharisaical communities and you're just coming at it from your tradition. No, they're morally culpable for their misunderstanding of the text. But in, in Matthew 12, this type of attitude takes on again, this time over the Sabbath. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, a desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Three times in this passage, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their failure to understand what they've read. Have you not read? Have you not read? If you had known what this means, and then he quotes the text. Jesus assumes there is a meaning, and he assumes that those who read the Bible prayerfully and, and with, with diligence are responsible for knowing what it means. And he rebukes the Pharisees because they claim to be those people who've studied the word, who are scholars of the word, and they don't know what it means. They've misinterpreted it. So Jesus, and, and Jesus does this constantly. The apostles do this constantly. How many times in the gospels, in, in the epistles, will somebody quote a verse, not even explain it, and assume that that settles the issue? 
In other words, the meaning of the text is so readily apparent. Jesus' temptation, for instance. You shall, you shall not worship, you shall only worship the Lord God only. He doesn't give an exposition of it. He assumes the meaning is straightforward. Man shall not live on bread alone. Straightforward. He just throws it out there. Over and over, Jesus and the apostles treat the Old Testament as if it's understandable. Understandable by people who lived 2,000 years after it was written. And we're 2,000 years from the New Testament being written, but the Jews of Jesus' day were thousands of years removed from Moses and Abraham as well. And despite all of that, without you know, modern um, technology, archaeology, Resources, Jesus still expected and assumed the readers, at least in a general sense, were understanding what they were reading. And this isn't to say that there aren't tricky parts of the Bible and hard parts of the Bible to understand, but the Bible in general assumes it is understandable. And it's not just that God has given us words, but moving on to point two, God gave us his spirit so that he might be known. I want you to see this. God so wants to be known that he superintends both ends of the process. On the one hand, he it is who superintends the writing of Scripture. And so 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God didn't leave it to chance. He superintends the writing of Scripture. And, and Jeb showed us how he superintends the preservation of Scripture. And then on the other end, he superintends the reading of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13 says this. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world... But the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Let me say that again. We have not received the Spirit from the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Take, take comfort in our ability to read and understand the Bible. God chose words. They're a fit medium. They can, they can do the task. He superintended the writing, and then he sends us his spirit to help in our understanding. Jesus promises this, in fact, in John 16, 12 to 15, where he says to his disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will, not, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's the Spirit going to do primarily when he comes? He is going to testify to the Father, not using his own words. Even though in the first century we saw the Holy Spirit giving direct prophecy, but primarily testifying to the Father and Son's words. He will testify concerning me. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And so one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is helping God's people understand God's word, opening our eyes. God has not left us orphans. 
And so I, I want to try to tie up a response then to this notion of um, understanding words and language and, and just try to bring it to a, a point. First, this notion of humility, I think, is really very hypocritical. When people challenge that to think the Bible can mean anything is, is hypocritical. And, and this really, if, if you aren't wrestling with this, trust me, there are people who are. Um, before I go any further, I just want to read a sample. I met with a student two years ago, about twice a week for most of the summer, who was wrestling with this. And, and he wrote me a very honest, heartfelt letter explaining the tension he felt um, as he was in a religion course. He said, that being said, I'm not entirely sold on the literalist reading of the Bible. College education has taught me more how to think than learning specific information. This is simultaneously a blessing and a curse. I am skeptical, if not cynical, of theology that is not scholarly. And this is a problem as God is Lord over all and not just those who prestigiously call themselves theologians. I think very critically about everything before accepting it. One consequence of this line of thought is that I am terrified to take firm stands on much of anything. And my heart broke for this guy. And I, and I meet other people like this who are just terrified of landing anywhere. That in higher academia and in colleges, they're taught not to be discerners of truth, but sort of uh, samplers. You read a little bit from this community, you read a little bit from this community, and what you're taught, either explicitly or implicitly, is that there's so many views and there's so many approaches that anyone who lands is either arrogant or ignorant. And so under the guise of humility and under the guise of multiculturalism and under the guise of, of wanting to check out different viewpoints, we don't believe anything. We don't believe anything. And so this notion of humility to me really seems rather hypocritical. Um, John Piper pointed this out. He said, when you get to somebody who's so humble, um, it starts to sort of flip itself upside down. He goes, because this is basically what much in the culture and much in the academy are saying, is they're saying we're so finite and we're so broken and we're so weak that we couldn't possibly be expected to understand what our master says to us. Therefore, we will do as we please. You see that? You see that subtle edge? This really is just an excuse to do whatever you want. I couldn't possibly be expected to understand this 2,000 years later. It would be way too arrogant of me to think that this, I know what this means. Therefore, I'll just do what I want. You see how that works? And under the guise of humility, you really set up total human autonomy. It's also hypocritical because no one else works this way. I mean, sometimes when I'm feeling particularly... Um, Let's see, what's a good biblical word? Uh, feisty. Um, and, I, and I talk to someone who's trying to explain to me how language doesn't mean anything. I'll start to intentionally um, get confused. I don't understand what you're saying. Tell me again. And they'll tell me again how words don't mean anything. I'll say, I, I still don't get it. Can you tell me one more time? And we'll go through this about 10 times until finally they get my point, which is you're spending an awful lot of time in words to try to communicate how words don't do anything. You're frustrated with me because I'm not understanding what you're saying. You know, I'll just keep saying I don't understand until they start getting irritated. And then I'll say, see, your frustration is because you expect me to understand what your words mean. Do you see the hypocrisy of writing books and papers and speaking ad nauseum about how words don't mean things? Using words to talk about how words don't mean things. It's absolutely hypocritical. No one lives this way. It's just smart 
games smart people play to be free from what God says. That's really the truth. It's really the truth. Um, God gave us his spirit, both individually, we saw that, but also corporately. At an individual level, you have God's Holy Spirit if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But corporately, he gave the church his spirit, and, and in Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus giving spiritual gifts to the church equipped leaders and teachers in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. So the Holy Spirit has gifted particular individuals in the church to be teachers. Um, in, in Titus 1.9, we'll be getting there hopefully in July, one of the qualifications of a pastor and an elder is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And I pointed this out to another student I was meeting with on Friday, again, wrestling with this exact same issue, scared of landing anywhere, and said, look, one of the qualifications of church leadership is the ability to read the Bible to understand it at least at a pretty central level and then be able to show from the Bible what it means and contradict those who teach error. This assumes there's a right meaning. This assumes there is a truth in the text and that elders and pastors need to be able to handle it rightly and teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And they just sort of looked puzzled, like, wow, okay. You know, and... And, and again, I'm not trying to deride these people. It's just, this is such a compelling lie out there in our culture. It's just your interpretation. It's just what you think it means. Don't be arrogant. No one wants to be arrogant. But, but God has not stuttered. And so we will take confidence. And of course, this does not mean that all passages are equally clear. Peter, in a sort of backhanded compliment to Paul, has this to say about Paul. Um, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own description, even as they do the other scriptures. So Peter's ready to admit, man, Paul says some pretty challenging things that are hard to understand. And certainly, there are passages in the Bible that are difficult. And, and there's a balance here. You know, if we've been focusing on those who so emphasize humility that we can't know anything, we certainly want to guard against thinking you've got everything figured out and you couldn't be wrong on anything. Anything I believe in the Bible, I need to be open to challenge from anyone who wants to come at me with the Bible and say, I don't think you've got that right. And I never get to say, no, I'm a pastor. I've got it all figured out. Leave me alone. I always need to be open. All of us always need to be open to someone coming to us saying, if I heard you right, I think you believe A, but I think it's B. Can we, can we open the Bible and look at that? And, and because I'm sinful, because I'm frail, I could be wrong on something. And so I need to be open to that challenge. Uh, and certainly we can go too far on the other side where we've got our statement of faith and we've got our creed. And, uh, you know, we don't need to fix it. We don't need to study it because we're right. And you can, there can be an arrogance and an over-dogmatism. Okay, that said, how then do we understand the Scriptures? And that's point three, how to understand the Scriptures. And the rest of our time, 
And, and this question, for some of you, we probably spent too much time on it, and for others, not enough. There are resources in the back table. If this is something you're interacting with, come talk to me. But we're going to spend the rest of our time, okay, how do you understand the Bible? How, how do we read it for understanding? And there could be 37 points here. I've even added in a couple since these notes went to press. But we will hopefully give some principles of how to read the Bible profitably. And I want you to notice that my points A, B, and C all start with read. If you get one thing out of this, read the Bible. Read it, read it, read it. God chose to reveal himself in words, which means, and I know some of us don't enjoy reading. I can't read any faster than I can talk which I know still means I can read pretty fast, but, um, but, but there, I mean, people who are good at reading can read much faster, much more quickly. Um, reading was a muscle that I had to flex and work on. If, if you don't enjoy reading, I would encourage you to, to overcome that. Your ability to know God, your ability to think God's thoughts after him, your ability to know truth and then speak truth to your neighbor will be directly proportional to your ability to read the Bible. This is why Christians have always been on the forefront of literacy movements and education. Always. You, you just look in the history. It was Christians pushing literacy. It's always been that way. Because your ability to know God's mind, to know his thoughts, to know him, your ability to see Jesus clearly is proportional to your ability to read and use words. Because God didn't send us a DVD or a video game. He sent us a book. And so even if it's hard, I'd encourage you, do, do hard things. The, the payoff is worth it. You get to know God better. You get to know his son better. You get to know his gospel better. So read and reread. That means reading extensively and intensively. That means I love the Bible reading programs um, that they're out there. Reading through the Bible in a year, getting to know your whole Bible. That's sort of the wide. And read studying individual passages. You know, study a book of the Bible like Philippians. Get to know your Bible that's the first and foremost thing know your Bible second read prayerfully and humbly um, we've talked about the Spirit's work and we don't open the Bible up as if in our own flesh and our own human wisdom we're going to figure things out we need to read relying on God's Spirit uh, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 2 now listen to this passage in, in Isaiah 66 Isaiah 66 1 and 2 thus says the Lord Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you've built for me, and what is this place of my rest? All these things my head made. So God says to Israel, I I'm not terribly impressed that you built me a temple. I, I made the universe. What, you're going to impress me with a stone building? But, but, declares the Lord, this is the one to whom I will look. You want to impress me? You want to get, draw my attention? The Lord says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word trembles. He takes my word seriously. And one of the implications, by the way, of taking God's word seriously is I'd encourage you to read your Bible as accurately as you're able. Now, we need translations for third grade reading levels because there are people that's their reading level. They have a third grade reading level, and we need Bible translations at that level. But I would suggest that if your primary Bible of study is a third grade reading level, and you have a 12th grade, and if you personally have a 12th grade reading level, then I, I have a hard time seeing how, if that's your primary Bible of study, that you're taking God's word terribly seriously or trembling at his word. Um, I would encourage you, and not, that, not that the paraphrases and more looser translations are bad, but I would encourage you to please get a, a literal Bible and read it 
and supplement your, the other translations you may like. There's a couple good ones out there. There's four or five really good literal translations. Um, if we're to take God's word seriously, then all the words matter. Um, and, and that's one of the ways that we can show reverence to God's word is to read our ability. We want a Bible that as closely represents what he said as possible. Um, that's how we want to study. So we read and reread. We read prayerfully and humbly. We read in community. Proverbs 27:17 says, "Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens a man." And the thought is this: that we want to guard against just sort of going off in a corner and just reading the Bible by yourself and not bouncing what you're seeing off of other people. But rather, we're the church, and we're to read the Bible together. And we've already seen how God gave the church leaders and teachers, and, and so we're testing our readings off of each other. Um, recently, when I was at that Simpson Symposium, the one question that got thrown at me was, um, how do you guard against some naive reading of the Bible if you think you understand what it means? And I said, well, one of the things I want to do is I want to bounce my understanding of the Bible off of other people, and I want to be open to people challenging me, and I want to be open to critique. At the same time, I do think, right now at least, that I understand what you know, this given passage means. And that's what iron sharpening iron does. You think of the Ethiopian eunuch who was having a hard time understanding Isaiah 53 until Philip arrives. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, and Philip helps him. And so we need each other for this. This is in large part what pastors and elders help do, is teach and help people understand the word. And so we need to read and reread, read prayerfully and humbly. We need to read in community. Next, compare. Compare. What I mean by compare is this. Compare scripture with scripture. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. And what I mean by that is this. You, you come across, you're reading along, and you get to a difficult passage. You get to something tricky. You get to something not immediately clear. Well, odds are there are other places in the Bible where that same topic is dealt with. And what I frequently find is one difficult passage is, is explained or understood in light of three or four similar, much more clear passages. And the reformers talked about the analogy of Scripture, the thought being that Scripture interprets Scripture, that no one passage will be in direct conflict with another. And this is part of why we need to read wide. Um, there, there are some verses, that if you just look at this one verse and ignore what the Bible says on everything else, you can get into trouble. And so read and reread. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. And so compare Scripture with Scripture. If you read a passage and you come up with some strange understanding, I, I think this is saying, compare it with the rest of the Bible. Um, compare it with the rest of the Bible. Next, observe. And here, context, context, context. Context simply means words mean things as they relate to other words. And a lot of times, if you take a snippet of a verse or a phrase of a verse, you can make it do strange things. For instance, did you know that it is written in the Bible, clear as day, that there is no God? It says that in the Bible. What's really important is to know that the words before that in Psalm 14.1 is the fool says there is no God. Right? Fair enough. Um, but this happens all the time. People sort of take half a verse. There's a very popular book recently um, that took half of Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. And so the, the title of the chapter, God made you for a purpose. You've got a purpose. The second half of the verse says, 
even the wicked for the day of destruction. That, that, that puts a little different spin on that, doesn't it? Because God's purpose for somebody may not be, they might not be as thrilled about that purpose as perhaps um, the author is leading them to believe. I'd suggest you really, if you're studying the Bible, read a few verses before and ahead. Read, read the paragraph before and be ahead. Um, context, context, context. A text without a context, just grabbing half a verse, is a pretext for a proof text. You can make the Bible do anything you want if you're just grabbing a phrase here and a phrase there. Um, you read, read the Bible in context. Observe. And this means you're looking for things like genre. You're going to interpret um, psalms differently than you interpret a narrative. Poetry makes use of flowery figures of speech. So if in um, one of the psalms it says, The Lord is a strong tower of refuge. All who take shelter in him will not be put to shame. We don't suddenly picture a talking tower. You know, we get it as a metaphor. But if in Genesis the text says that Abraham went into a strong tower of defense, then he probably entered into a building. And that's because we understand that different genres in Scripture you interpret slightly differently. Proverbs are going to be read differently than Paul's letters. You read narrative differently than apocalyptic literature. Um, and so that's another thing you've got to take into context of what you're reading. Next, question. Question. And here's my, my blank, is play Jeopardy with the Bible. When you're reading the text, ask questions. You guys ever seen Jeopardy on TV, the TV show Jeopardy? The way Jeopardy works is they give you the answer and you've got to come up with the question. And that's really what the Bible is. The Bible is God's answer. And sometimes our problem with understanding the Bible is we're not asking the right questions. And so more and more what I'm doing as I'm reading my Bible is I'm saying, why does the author include this tidbit? What question should I be asking that this verse answers. You know, you ever read a Bible and you're kind of like, man, you took a long time saying that. Well, there's a reason. I'll, I'll give you one example. If you read through John's gospel, there's a pattern that starts in chapter five where Jesus works a miracle and then the rest of the chapter is Jesus sort of expounding, talking, unpacking the significance of the miracle. It happens in five, it happens in six. And then in chapter nine, the pattern gets broken. Jesus heals the man born blind and we don't jump to Jesus talking about it. What you get is the Pharisees interrogating the man. And Jesus talking about it comes really in chapter 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd. And the rest of chapter 9 is this broken pattern. Now, I immediately ask, why did John do that? Why, why is the pattern broken? What do I need to see? What's so important about seeing the Pharisees interrogate this man that we break the pattern? And, and for those of you who are, go to Greg's ABF, you'll find out today um, why that is. Right, Greg? I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. But those are the types of questions to be asking. Why does the author include something? Why is this written the way it is? Why is this detail added? Um, you play Jeopardy with the Bible. What questions does the text think I should be asking that it's answering? Next, think. Think. Meditate on the word. Again, understanding doesn't come initially. I mean, it would be nice if we could just open the Bible to any place and just sort of, boom, there it is. There it is. But it doesn't always work that way. And that's why the Bible commends meditation, chewing on, reading the word. 
you know, like, like a cow chewing its food over and over, chewing on the word. Uh, under meditation and thinking, you could put talking about it with others, reading other commentaries and books, listening to sermons. You know, d- don't demand that if I don't understand it the second I read it, I give up. Chew on it. Ask God for help. Think. And this also, you know, one thing that sometimes people do, I don't know if you've ever seen someone do this where they do this sort of, their Bible verse for the day. They just sort of get it to open and here's my verse. That's, that's not a terribly good way to read the Bible either. I saw a rather comical video um, highlighting the weakness of this approach. The guy does his magic Bible verse for the day and it's Hosea 1-2. Go marry for yourself a wife of harlotry. I wish the guy in the video looks really puzzled and he goes, what, Debbie in accounting? <laughs> and and that's, that's not a good way to read the Bible. That's not a good way to read the Bible. And you'll run into trouble the second that your verse for the day is Judas hung himself. Um, you will run into trouble. You know, then, no, I saw another video where the guy does that and then he goes to the next one. I didn't like that one. And then he gets to Jesus, you, do, you go and do Likewise. He's like, oh, uh-oh. You know, and, and then he gets to Jesus saying, what you do, do quickly. And he, yeah, you can, get into all, you can get into all types of trouble with magic Bible verses for the day. Um, think and, and obey, obey. I think sometimes one of the reasons we have a hard time understanding the Bible is that God does not feel obligated to reveal new truth to us if we're not already trying to obey the truth that he has shown us. I mean, really, we have no business saying, God, help me understand this passage. Give me understanding. If God has already given you understanding and you're not obeying it. Um, In Ezekiel 14, you don't need to turn there, but in Ezekiel 14, what happens is elders of Israel come to um, Ezekiel and they want a word from God and they sit humbly and they sit respectfully but God knows their hearts and he tells Ezekiel Ezekiel these men who come before you they've set up idols in their hearts Sh- should I let myself be consulted by them and what he's saying is you can come to God and you can come to God's word in a way that really just wants to serve your own purposes I want to hear what I want to hear and God knows our hearts and he, he knows whether we're coming to his word because I want to obey or I'm coming to his word because I want to hear what I want to hear. And we don't want to come as idolaters. We want to come as obedient children. We have no business asking for more light and more truth if we're not already attempting to obey the truth that he has given us. Um, and I think as we try to obey truth, at least in my life, God starts showing me new truth in his word. I want to add one final point. Point I. Um, and there can be 27 more. And that is, that is, look at the big picture. Look for Christ. Jesus in Luke 24 is, is walking on the road to Emmaus um, with some men. And he says this, He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures all the things concerning himself. It's Luke 24, 25 to 27. And so in a big macro sense, the entire Bible is about Jesus. Now you can, you can get into trouble with this if you start trying to find Jesus behind every bush. Um... There's some medieval interpretations of the Bible that are very, very creative in finding Jesus in places that he's quite clearly not. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the three coins, the, the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son and the innkeepers, the Apostle Paul, 
Augustine. If you read Augustine on the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's very creative. But we know from the book of Hebrews, Dave, right, that all of this Old Testament sacrificial system is set up to picture and point to Jesus. Jesus really fulfilling many roles simultaneously. And so you want to look for Jesus Christ. The Bible predicts and points to the cross in so many ways and in so many places that you, you want to study with an eye for Jesus, with an eye for the fact that God would send his son to die on a cross. He would pay the penalty, bear our sin, rise on the third day. This is all predicted in the Bible, all pointed to. And that by faith in his name, that by trusting him, we could be forgiven, that we could have life. This is the big picture of the Bible. Don't miss the big picture for the many little pictures. This is the big tapestry. Is God putting his son on display, putting the gospel on display? Um, so read with an eye towards Jesus Christ. And so I hope this morning that they've had some confidence that the Bible means something. It can be understood. I'd encourage you to read, to reread it, to read it critically, to read it thoughtfully, to read it in community, to read it asking questions, but to trust that God can reveal truth to us, that we can know things, and that it's not arrogance to humbly say, I, I believe I understand this passage. I, I, I believe I know what God has said, and I'd be happy to show you why. That is not arrogance. That is faithfulness. That is faithfulness. Our God has not stuttered. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll move into our time of communion. Lord God, we just thank you for your word and for its certainty. We thank you for um, how good you are to us. Lord, you have bought us and saved us and, and you've adopted us into your family and you've not left us orphans, but you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit and you've given us each other. Lord, we know that we are responsible for what we are given. To whom much is given, much will be required. And with such lavish blessings, Lord, let us, not, let us not neglect your word. Let us not um, presume upon your grace, but rather eagerly, like newborn babes who long for milk, let us eagerly read, reread, and prayerfully seek to understand your word and your will for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.